And I remembered that house all, my, all the rest of my uh, childhood after we were removed from it. I longed to go back to that house. Welcome to Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, the Marpo Monogatari, with me, Raymond Nakamura. This Nikkei National Museum podcast is made possible through support from the Yosef Wask Publication Grant and the Vancouver Heritage Foundation. We acknowledge that this episode comes to you from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. Marpol was home to many Japanese-Canadian families in the early 20th century, including those of David Suzuki and Joy Koga. In 1942, they, along with thousands of other Japanese-Canadians, were forced to relocate. In this episode, we explore what the homes of Japanese Canadians were like in pre-war Marple. Warning, this episode contains references to the sexual abuse of children. Nowadays, little remains of the Japanese Canadian community in Marple. Wendy Matsubuchi's mother, Esther, lived with her parents Junichi and Ade Sunohara and her older brothers on Osler Street before the war. Here's Wendy describing her own impressions of Marpole. Marpole for me has always been a place that we'd driven by on their way to the airport <laughs> in order to pick up relatives who've been coming back to visit us in Vancouver because after the war or during the war, everybody went to Slocan and then after that to Toronto. Uh, my mom was the only one who decided to come back to Vancouver with my dad, who was born in Cumberland, with his mom, who was born in Cumberland. So um, we just knew growing up that that's where my mom came from, but there was nowhere but to go back to. We could drive by the street, Osler, but there's no sign of anything Japanese really there. Uh, it's it's gone. It's it, it's not even a ghost town like Sandin or you know in the Slocan Valley. It's simply vanished. Uh, it's the eradication of an entire community of what seventy families. Uh, there's nothing. People living there now probably don't even know that there used to be a sizable, vibrant community of Japanese Canadians living there. Laura Fukumoto now lives not far from where her grandfather, Fujio Fukumoto, and her great-grandparents, Toyomon and Umechio Fukumoto, lived on Selkirk Street in Marpole. Here she talks about her quest for family history. I've lived in Vancouver for the past 11 years now. Um, I moved here from Ontario, Whitby, Ontario, uh, to attend UBC. And... Um, in 2013, um, my dad mentioned to me that um, his father was born in Marpole. And prior to that, um, I didn't know that uh, we had any family roots in Vancouver. Um, so since 2013, I've um, been on a uh, meandering journey, uh, trying to find little pieces of information um, about our family connections to historic Marpole. The so-called Marpole Midden provides a concrete reminder of the ancestral, traditional, and ongoing connection of Indigenous peoples to the land. 
These remnants of a Musqueam village run from the edge of the Fraser River to 70th Avenue. Construction workers uncovered it in 1889 while building an extension to Granville Street. A plaque acknowledging the National Historic Site stands in Marple Midden Park on 72nd Avenue, a block east of Granville. The discovery of human remains on the site of the Midden during preparation for a commercial and residential project led to months of protests. In the fall of 2012, the BC Ministry of Lands and Forests announced that the province would respect the wishes of the Musqueam people and not grant a permit to developers. The first non-native settlers were two brothers from Ireland, Fitzgerald and Samuel McCleary. From 1862, they farmed the fertile land along the river, where the McCleary Golf Course now sits. In 1875, Henry Eburn set up a small store at the foot of Hudson Street. After he added the Eburn Post Office, the area became known as Eburn. In 1889, the opening of a bridge that linked the mainland to Sea Island led Eburn to move his business, resulting in two separate areas being called Eburn. The area couldn't have been that busy because they didn't change the name to Marpole until 1916. That was for Richard Marpole, the General Superintendent of the Pacific Division of Canadian Pacific Railway. We don't know the names of the first Japanese Canadians in the area, but they probably arrived around the beginning of the 20th century. The 1911 census listed a handful of Japanese Canadians living in Eburn Station at Hudson and Marine. They worked as laborers for the nearby Eburn Sawmill or the Canadian Pacific Railway. Alan Masayoshi Arima, known as Mush, grew up in Marpole. His father, Itaro Arima, came from Kagawa Prefecture and married his wife, Same, in Japan before emigrating to Canada in May 1921. Here is Mush from the Sedai Video Project in Toronto describing the geography of Marpole. Marple is situated on the southern edge of Vancouver, immediately northeast of the present-day Vancouver International Airport. It was home to more than 60 Japanese families during the 30s and 40s, until the evacuation of the Japanese. The earliest Japanese-Canadian laborers in Marple may have lived in nearby boarding houses. A Mrs. Nishi ran one on Selkirk Street, and Denzo Enjo owned the Amano Apartments. Here is Masharima talking about his family renting a house on Selkirk Street, near the center of the Japanese-Canadian community in Marpole. Our home was a two-story house, and we rented the first floor. Now, the interesting part of this house is the fact that Mr. Suzuki, who is the grandfather of David Suzuki, owned the house. So, I have a little bit of history there with a famous person. The Mr. and Mrs. Suzuki were Sentaro and Shika Suzuki, who owned four properties on Selkirk Street in 1942. Their grandson, David Suzuki, lived in one of them as a young boy. Esther Matsubuchi grew up Esther Yorimi Sunohara on Osler Street. Her father, Junichi, and mother, Mi Sunohara, originally came from Nagano Prefecture. Junichi worked as a gardener for the Buckerfield family. Here's Esther talking about their home before the forced relocation of Japanese Canadians in 1942, euphemistically known at the time as evacuation. 
you went up about eight flights of stairs to the first floor. And I guess there was a basement, but that's all like a one story building. The house we lived in, it was going to be given to us at a later date from the Buckerfields, but the war broke out and uh, so that was all canceled. But I guess we would have had that house if there's no evacuation. The Landscapes of Injustice Research Project has recently made available online microfiches of the records from the custodian of enemy property in Ottawa. That was the government body responsible for selling off the property of Japanese Canadians without their permission during World War II. These records show that most of the Japanese Canadian families living in Marple own their homes. Laura Fukumoto, however, points out that the property value assessments may not have been that objective. So the files about the sale of the house in Marpole. Um, so I read through those files recently and that showed um, the appraisal of the house, um, which I can only describe as biased and racist <laughs> um, because it describes this five bedroom house as cheaply made and they appraised it for drum roll please, $700. Um, so I, I did some research in a house at that time uh, would have been around $3,000. Um, so it's still like, I think maybe less than a sixth of the, the amount that it should have sold for. Um, but there are a lot of notes in the appraisal that um, mention like, oh, the roads are unpaved. There's a bunch of Japanese people who live in the neighborhood, like, cheap, 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 um, you know, which it, it like sparks some kind of primal anger in me uh, to read that. In those files, uh, it mentioned that my great grandfather uh, worked at a lumber mill. Um, I think it's called Sawarn. It's still in business today. But that was very interesting to find out that he's some kind of lumber or woodworker. Um, so I immediately questioned whether or not their house was in fact cheaply made. Um, because I know, I know for a fact that uh, Japanese people, many of them were woodworkers. So the house was probably fine. <laughs> Yeah, that was really interesting to find out because prior to that, I didn't really have a, any kind of imagining for, for what their life would have been like prior to World War II. Mio Ishiwata Ling grew up on West 68th Avenue with her father Hikotaro and her mother Umeno Ishiwata. In her oral history from 1985, Mio talks about her father's reaction to the commission's assessment of their home. I think he said it was worth about 5000 when he left, you know, when the war was declared. So um, he felt very upset because the, um, I guess the uh, commission said the, your property, uh, you know, is um, invalidated because we had, had the um, custodians take care of it and then various people came through and they plundered. 
Sam Yamamoto was a teenager when his father Toraichi and mother Yasu Yamamoto decided to move their seven children to Southwest Marine Drive. Here Sam describes the reason for moving and what Marpole was like back then. Back in 1937, I guess, um, living in Sea Island, one of the canneries, there's a prevalence of tuberculosis. And um, there's quite a concern that uh, starting from the lower part of the cannery um, village, we're moving upwards towards upriver. So my family, my dad um, decided better get out of there and move somewhere else. And uh, that somewhere else happened to be Marple. But just, just uh, across the bridge, in other words, Sea Island. So all you have to do is take a bridge across the uh, north end of um, Sea Island and um, go over the bridge. You're in Marple. So you weren't too, but it wasn't too far away, really. One vehicle bridge, I would say. Yeah. In other words, you didn't have two lanes, just in one vehicle. I would say the west side of Marple, we stop at Granville Street, and the east side uh, at one time was Oak Street, I would say. Yeah, Oak Street, yeah. I would think so, to Oak Street and Granville Street. And the bottom side of the streets were in the Marple area. So Hudson Street was a, a short, very short street, but that was a hub of really Marple at one time. Yeah. Living in, in Sea Island, it was something like living in Stevenson where you're a bunch of houses you know, um, uh, built um, alongside the uh, dike. Like going to Marple, all of a sudden you're you're in a city, shall we say, suburb of the, suburb of the city. Yeah. Group that I associate with was living on along Marp um, Selkirk Street, you see. And but the newer group had moved in. Few in Osler, that Selkirk and uh, uh, Oak Street on the on the west side of Oak Street, and the few that moved in from the outside, from the Sea Island side, and moved over was on the east of Oak Street. There's several families that bought the houses after that. Even that, you know, soon after we moved in, uh, they had moved from Acme Cannery and Vancouver Cannery into that area. It's a fairly big house we had, uh, a full basement, furnace, you know, and upstairs and, uh, I mean, the main floor and the upper floor as well too, you see. So bedrooms upstairs, uh, there were three, three bedrooms. Barb Miko Gravelin's mother, Yachio Nishimura, grew up on Selkirk Street with her parents, Uhe and Tachi Miike, who were from Kumamoto Prefecture. Yachio was the eldest of four daughters and three sons. Barb talks about her grandparents' home. So my grandfather, Uhe Miike, M-I-I-K-E, he had purchased a house in Marpo. 
before the war. The house that my grandfather bought, it was a five-room house, and that included the kitchen, living room. I think there were, I'm not sure if there was only one bedroom or two bedrooms, but then he had built uh, an additional room, which was, I believe it was 10 feet by 24 or 26 feet. So I would guess that large room accommodated the rest of the family. A lot of new windows were installed at that uh, time. Longtime Marpole resident Anne-Marie Metten is executive director of the historic Joy Kogawa House on 64th Avenue, the childhood home of author and poet Joy Kogawa. Here, Anne-Marie describes the building. A 1912 craftsman-style bungalow. Quite beautiful finishes inside. It's all wood paneling and um, ceiling walls. It's, it's extraordinary craftsmanship inside. The exterior, of course, is covered in stucco that we hope to remove and find the cedar shingles beneath. Of course, that's the way it was with cedar shingles and beautiful sunroom windows across the front facade. In 1937, when Joy and her family moved there from Kitsilano, there would have been two bedrooms only. Uh, her mother and father's bedroom and her own. And I know from an interview with her brother, Timothy, that he remembers sleeping in a cubicle, like they had just put up some partition walls for him. So that was not a separate bedroom. That was just sort of more makeshift mm -hmm. um, privacy for him. We have a photograph of Joy at three years old, sitting on a small stool looking um, North, um, to, and there were, they don't seem to have been there in that photograph, these large cedar uh, and fir. Uh, other, and, and we do know that it was peach trees and an apple tree on the property and not a cherry tree. Um, but we're, we're dealing with a creative writer here. And, uh, mm -hmm. and that uh, there's a symbolism. This is Joy Kogawa talking about the house. Mm -hmm. I was born in 1935, and when I was two years old, we moved from um, an apartment in Kitsilano, uh, which was in the church building, and in, into the house at 1450 West 64th Avenue. And I remembered that house all, my, all the rest of my uh, childhood after we were removed from it. I longed to go back to that house. This brings us to the disturbing story of Joy Kogawa's father, Gordon Nakayama. He was well known in the Japanese-Canadian community as an Anglican minister, but perhaps less well known as a pedophile. Here is a statement from Wendy Matsubuchi on behalf of the Japanese-Canadian Working Group. The childhood home of Joy Kagawa, currently known as Kagawa House, was owned by Joy's father, Gordon Goichi Nakayama. 
Mr. Nakayama said he sexually abused about 300 boys over a 60-year period while a minister of the Anglican Church of Canada. The victims of Mr. Nakayama's clergy sexual abuse include Japanese Canadian families who were living in the Marpole area before the outbreak of World War II. Those suffering under Mr. Nakayama's abuse include not only the survivors, but also their families, friends, and descendants who now live across Canada, as well as overseas, where Mr. Nakayama also served as priest. The Japanese Canadian Working Group encourages Kagawa House to work with the greater Japanese Canadian community to help the healing process for those individuals and families affected by Mr. Nakayama's actions, as we understand that acknowledging this history is important to the healing of survivors, their families, and the greater community. This is Joy Kogawa responding to pressure from some who expect her to atone for her father's crimes. Just like Japanese Canadians were guilty by association with their ancestral country and what happened to all of us as a result of that hatred, misplaced hatred for the innocent was that we were all dispersed across the country, all our homes were taken away from us and we who were innocent suffered and I feel it's the same thing that I, who was innocent, have suffered because my father was guilty and they have held me guilty by association. So they've done to me what the country did to them. Anyway, um, that, that was eating me up for a while, but I, I think that my road at this point in life is forgiveness. Here's the executive director of the historic Joy Kogawa House, Anne-Marie Metten, reflecting on how to move forward. We have been approached um, by the working group, but I, I, I need to, I, I want to know the stories, the actual stories. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it's very complicated mm -hmm. and confusing and numbing and wrong on so many levels. And it has affected um, generations and it needs repair. And is that through writing? Is, is that what we can offer at Joy Kagawa House? We are a home for writing. Um, we host writers and residents and, and, and writing workshops and, and there is skill and ability that we can bring to addressing um, personal experience and expressing grief and anger and rage and I, I believe that's where we, we we could go with anyone who was interested in working with us. In 2015 the Anglican Church of Canada publicly apologized to the Japanese Canadian community for the sexual abuse of hundreds of Japanese Canadian boys by Gordon Nakayama while he was an Anglican priest from 1934 to 1994. In 2021, the Anglican Church of Canada announced that it had authorized $610,000 to contribute to a healing fund for Japanese Canadians to be administered by the National Association of Japanese Canadians. The Anglican Church will also finance a project manager for a team to manage support for survivors, their descendants, and other members of the community harmed by Mr. Nakayama. Contact information is available in the show notes.
Immigrants from Japan are known as Issei. Many of the first Issei were men looking for work. After the 1907 anti-Asian riot in Vancouver, Japan agreed to Britain's request to limit the number of Japanese men coming to Canada. More of them stayed and arranged to marry women from Japan based only on their photographs. These intrepid women became known as picture brides. This is Liz Nunoda talking about her father Arthur Asao Nunoda, who grew up on West 70th Street with her grandfather Soichi and grandmother Sue Nunoda, who were from Shimano Prefecture. Dad said he thinks Grandma was probably a picture bride, but he didn't know for sure. And she was quite a bit younger when she married my grandpa. So it says here he was, uh, when my dad's birth certificate was issued, my grandpa was 36 and she was 24. This is Esther Matsubuchi talking about her mother. My mom was born in 1906 and she was 16 when she came over. So what's that? 1922. Here is Mio Ishiwata Lin on her mother, Umeno Ishiwata. You know, she was a tiny woman, Junie. She never weighed more than 100 pounds. And I, I used to envy her because um, she could wear the stylish clothes and, and really, you know, uh, I guess looks uh, like, uh, you know, well-dressed. And she could do it on minimum uh, income because she knew how to manage. She was a good manager. My mother knew how to uh, save, and she was very thrifty. I, I remember I also wore hand-me-downs. She used to get clothes from the places she worked and have the dresses done. I, I used to uh, resent it, but um, I guess it helped to keep us together, you know, and, uh, and she hardly ever bought new clothes. Oh, we always managed anyway. It was my mother that often Timmy talked, she read, she read uh, profusely, always reading, you know, the periodicals and, and uh, magazines and, you know, that she could get her hands on. So that, uh, I guess that made the difference. And I think, uh, it broadened my views a lot too. But for the, the, the for her era, I think she was way ahead of time. We were fairly considered fairly well established because uh, only two two youngsters in the family. I guess that because other people all had seven, eight children to cope with. So we were considered well off by their standard. You know, I mean, we were poor, but by their standard, we were. The first generation of Japanese Canadians born in Canada are called Nisei. Many arrived in Marpole with the help of Japanese Canadian midwives. Here is Masayoshi Alan Arima, known as Mush, in an excerpt from the Sedai video project. I was born in Marpole, British Columbia, to Itaro and Same Arima in 1931, the youngest of four children delivered at home by a well-known Japanese midwife, Mrs. Watanabe. Now I think, I don't know, some of the older people might know that lady because she was famous in Vancouver, as far as I know. 
and she delivered many of the Japanese babies in the community. Some families became more westernized, involving doctors and hospitals. Nisei Kar Suzuki grew up in Marpole and raised his own family there with his wife Setsu. As part of an interview in 1983, Carr describes the birth of his third generation, Sunsei children, in 1936. This was Marsha and her twin brother David Suzuki, who grew up to become the well-known scientist, broadcaster, and environmentalist. When the twins were born, my doctor doubled in speed. I said, oh my God, I said, is that fair? He said, well, he says, you got two children. <laughs> Jesus, in those days, in those days, $35, you know, obstetrical, uh, you know, cases, but he doubled it to $70. That's all right. He did me a favor, anyways, because he saved my wife's life. My wife was in labor for two two days. And, uh, David was such a big kid for a twin. He was nine pounds, and he was a twin. My wife almost died. Forty-eight hours. Actually, he he seemed, he didn't give my daughter this twin daughter three months to live. My wife nursed her and looked after her, and God, she grew up, married, and had two children. And the doctor said three months. That's something. You know, you can't you can't condemn person until until that person dies. You always try to to uphold life if you can. Here is Barb Miko Gravelin on her mother, who grew up Yachio Miike. So my mother was the eldest of uh, seven children born in Vancouver. Um, one daughter that my grandparents had, Hatsuko, was left with relatives uh, as an infant. And um, they had planned to reunite, but then the war intervened. Here's Masharima on his experience as a young boy in Marpole. His words are surprising when you consider that his father, Itaro Arima, died in 1939 when Mash was only eight years old, and his mother, Same, died in 1944 when he was 13. My story is similar to thousands of kids my age before the breakout of World War II. I lived a normal and carefree life. And although we were poor, there was always food on the table and clothes to wear. The kids that I played with were in the same circumstance, so being poor did not seem to matter. My mom, like many other Japanese women, stayed home during that time doing the household chores. This is Joy Kogawa on Life at Home with her mother, Lois Masui Nakayama. We were raised with Japanese food. So, you know, shoyu and miso and gohan. <laughs> I think we bought it um, mostly. I did not go to Japanese school. I think my parents wanted me not to do that. So, but my mother taught me Japanese until the level of grade three or something, but I've forgotten it all. <laughs> I used to be able to write, you know, up to, um, uh, I thought that was hiragana, I guess, katakana. Um, but um, I've forgotten everything.
Barb Miko Gravelin's mother, Yachio Nishimura, grew up in Marpo with Barb's grandparents, Uhe and Tachi Miike, who were originally from Kumamoto Prefecture. Barb recounts what her older brother said about visiting the grandparents on Selkirk Street. My eldest brother, John uh, Kinichi, mentioned in the family album, because I don't know whether he was visiting, I would guess, he would go and visit. So he, he just said that every time they visited my grandfather in Marple, my grandfather would serve him uh, hot rice with raw egg on top. And he said, to this day, he, can, he can't, he just can't eat that. In his autobiography, Metamorphosis, Stages in a Life, David Suzuki recalled being amazed at how, in the middle of summer, his father could remove a block of ice that had been kept in a bin filled with sawdust since the winter. He remembered chasing horse-drawn wagons that carried blocks of ice down the street in Marpole during the late 1930s. In the summer, they would pick up fallen pieces of ice to suck on as a treat. Those blocks of ice would have been kept in ice boxes. Here's Sam Yamamoto on how his family kept food cool in their home without an electric refrigerator. The house itself had a section that brought in fresh air, you know, and keep it fresh. It had a little section place where we kept things cool. Mind you, the basement itself was cool too as well. Yards were a little different back then as well. Here's Barb Miko Gravelin describing the yard of her grandparents, Uhe and Tachi Miike. The house that my grandfather bought on Selkirk, it, it had five fruit trees in the backyard. It kept chickens back there. And I found this one photo of a baby uh, on, a, on a blanket in the backyard with chickens all around this baby. And I thought, what is this? You know, and I thought, what are these chickens? Apparently, it was not that unusual to have chickens in Marpole, but not necessarily fun. Here's Joy Kogawa on theirs. There was a mother white hen, as I remember it, in, in the box, and baby chicks were put in there, and then she started pecking them. And I remember calling my mom and telling her that she was killing the baby chicks. And so, of course, that was the end of that. They were removed, and I don't know what happened after that. So um, I do not remember that we had a chicken coop or anything like that. Joy Kogawa recalls her room, which is now used by writers and residents at the historic Joy Kogawa house. It was the back bedroom, which is still there. Um, but I had a feeling that it was a little bit I don't know, not quite the way it's configured now. There was a little tiny window in the closet. And so you can see that little tiny window in the back of the bedroom, um, but the wall separating it into a closet is not there. So things have changed a little bit. She recalls her back porch, including her brother, Timothy Nakayama. But I remember the back porch where my mother used to hang clothes from. And I remember we had a cat and I dropped the cat from the porch down to the floor. And it did, and so I kept doing this and I'm thinking, wow, oh, how cool. 
and other parts of the house. I also remember that downstairs was my playroom, or, and I can remember these uh, cribs that were in the room. Those would have been my brother's and my crib. And my brother, Tim, had, um, uh, it wasn't TB, but it was something was wrong with his legs. And he was in a cast when I was very young. And he was always carried outside with his cast on. But the piano I was in, in, the, in my writing, I put it in a music room, but it really, it was in the living room. The front room had all those windows and that was, that was really a, a porch. And I can remember there was a goldfish and there was a wicker stand and a wicker chair and the goldfish in that bowl. What I remember one time is that when I was sitting having a meal, um, the goldfish wasn't there. So I ran over to it and it was flopping on the floor. I just caught it. Time. So I picked it up and put it back in and it swam. I was so happy. So I remember that. <laughs> I don't know what age I would have been. Pianos may have been as common as chickens in Marpole. Here's Mio Ishiwata Ling recalling her piano and her mother's opinions about it. Mother paid $300. That was, that was a fortune in those days, $300. It was a masonry upright piano, but the very best quality. She had, she wanted me to take piano lessons. So um, that was really something for those days, you know, for, for people to buy a piano because it was luxury. It's not like today. So um, and she got talking to a friend in town and um, they were quite established family and the, and the daughter was teaching piano. So I started and um, I just got into it, I guess, two years when the war broke out. And we got, I think we got $100 for that piano. Another important source of entertainment back then was the radio. Here is Mio Ishiwata Ling again. Console. In those days, everybody had big radios, you know. I remember we used to sit by the radio by the hours, you know. That was a mm -hmm. form of entertainment. The ones that I could remember was um, Edwin and Jack Benny. Well, he was very popular, Jack Benny. And the, Jack Benny and, and Eddie Cantor. Eddie Cantor was another big star. And uh, Jace Quinnback, Fred Allen. Unfortunately, life back then was not all sitting back listening to the radio. Liz Nunoda's father, Arthur Asao Nunoda, had two older brothers. Here's Liz talking about what happened to them. There were originally four boys in the family. And um, so the eldest was Jim. And right now I can't remember his Japanese name, um, but he was the eldest. And then the second eldest was Tak, and they called him Taka. And my dad was very close to Uncle Tak. And so in 1938, um, Jim had tuberculosis, which he, after some time, he died from that. Um, so they were kind of prepared for, for his passing. But Tak died very suddenly. Yeah, and he was out with friends skating on Deer Lake in the winter. 
in Burnaby, not, not that far from where I live now. And uh, he fell through the ice. And I actually dug up some old um, newspaper articles from the microfiche library at UBC. And he fell through the ice and he, he's friends. And they, the ones that were mentioned, they were all white, uh, young white guys. And they were trying to pull him out. But his, I guess his woolens, all the clothing he had on were too heavy and they couldn't pull him out. So he just sank under the ice and they, they recovered his body the next day. So, so that really hit the family, really, because it was so sudden. And the other brother had died the same year as well. Yeah, same year. And then, of course, 1941, all the stuff started to hit the fans. So there was, there was a lot of tragedy. So, so when, when the two eldest died, then my dad suddenly became the eldest boy. And he had to kind of take over their role during the war, helping, helping out. Although he, he um, said that he wasn't very close to his brother, Jim. Uh, and I think his brother, Jim, used to tease him because my dad had rheumatic fever as a baby. And apparently, I mean, it can weaken your heart, but uh, it can weaken eye muscles as well. So my dad's eyes were somewhat crossed and he used to get teased. And he said that Uncle Tack would always stick up for him and always defend him. But, but it sounds like Uncle Jim used to kind of tease him a lot. So he didn't, I don't think he really liked Uncle, Uncle Jim very much, but he was very attached to Uncle Tack, very close to him. So that must have been devastating. Yeah, he, yeah, in his, in my dad's notes, he said that his father went driving out to, he was trying to find Deer Lake, because I guess somebody had said, you know, that this had happened and he's trying to find Deer Lake. And when he fainted passed out and the same thing with my uh, grandmother she fainted when she found out as well so and and um, my dad wrote that it didn't really sink in until a few days later but yeah that was that was a big tragedy but uh, you know a lot of families had a lot of tragedy in their lives COVID-19 pandemic has perhaps given us all a better appreciation for the fragility of life. Here is Mio Ishiwata-Ling on ways her family was affected by other diseases in pre-war Marpol. I came from a family of six, but my mother said that during the flu epidemic, she lost four uh, all in one session. The, the flu, it was... There was a 1918 pool, I think she said, and they all died. Every one of them died, and my brother was the eldest and I was the youngest. We were the only two left, so I don't remember any others, mm-hmm. others in the family. And we lived there from the time I was born until, um, until the war. My brother died of tuberculosis, too, in those days, just about... I don't know, every family was afflicted with, you know, just about every family had one or two. They were afflicted with tuberculosis. We never hear of it today. It's almost unheard of thing, you know, but they had no remedy in those days. It was terrible. To tie up loose ends for this episode on homes in pre-war Marpole, we'll end with marriage. 
Here, Barb Miko Gravelin talks about her mother, Yachio, marrying Kinzaburo Nishimura in 1931. They moved to what Barb calls Japantown, which was more commonly known as Powell Street back then. I believe my mother, she married when she was 19. And at the time she married, she was working at a bakery in Japantown. So that's where she met my father. So she would have lived in Marple up until she would have been 19. My parents were both engaged to other people when they met. My grandfather had betrothed her to this older man that she was not keen on at all. She, she kind of, she found the arrangement really distasteful. He looked like he would be more my, you know, he would have been like 20, 30 years older. And, and then my father was engaged to a woman who um, ended up having meningitis or she ended up passing away. Then my father, he was the driver, delivering man for the bakery. My mother worked in the bakery. And in my booklet, I just said that they had noticed each other in the bakery. I, I guess after my father's engagement fell through. And um, I, I remember my uncle Munier, he told me a long time ago, he said, my mother was, uh, you know, she could have married anybody. Uh, she was considered quite attractive. And um, but she chose my father, who was short, and <laughs> you know they went on, they went fishing on their honeymoon, and my fa my mother just froze, you know, because my father was an avid fisherman, and he won this big trophy, and it was on Halloween night. They got married on October the thirty first, so <laughs> yeah. Here is a marriage announcement that appeared in the New Canadian newspaper on March 14th, 1941, to give you some idea of the customs involved. It happens to involve one of Yachio's younger sisters, and the Fuji was a fancy Japanese-Chinese food restaurant on Powell Street, often the site for wedding receptions. In Japanese tradition, nakodos are go-betweens or matchmakers, though the role can also be more as ceremonial witnesses. Marriage Vows Marriage vows will be exchanged by Mitsuo, third daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Uhe Mike of Marpole, and Haruo Furukawa, third son of Mr. and Mrs. Yaichi Furukawa, at a five o'clock ceremony on Saturday, March 15th at the Buddhist temple. The marriage ceremony will be followed by a reception at the Fuji. Dr. and Mrs. T. Kuzuhara and Mr. and Mrs. I. Kawamoto are the Nakodos. We hope you enjoyed this peek into the homes of Japanese Canadians living in Marpole before 1942. Thanks to those who shared their stories and comments in this episode. Alan Masayoshi, Mash Arima, Laura Fukumoto, Barb Miko Gravelin, Joy Koga, Mio Ishiwata Ling, 
Esther Matsubuchi, Wendy Matsubuchi, Anne-Marie Metten, Liz Nunoda, Kar Suzuki, and Sam Yamamoto. Research by Linda Kaumoto-Reed. Editing and original music by Itamar Sipong. Supported by the Tech Nation Career Ready Program. Thanks to Sue Bealey, Robert Womet, Roland Tanglau, and others from the Digital Ladders team who helped us pivot from a walking tour to a podcast. Raymond Nakamura was the writer and host. If you have any stories about Japanese Canadians to add to the Marpo Monogatari, we would love to hear them. And don't forget to tell your real and virtual friends about the Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me podcast by sharing it on social media.